Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I catch up with Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences, and we talk about EUA, and, and I guess the reason we chose that particular topic, uh, FDA recently came out with a couple of new draft guidances describing transition plans for such time when EUA termination has been announced. Now, we don't know when that is right now, and we'll know when, when the announcement is made, I'm quite sure. But nonetheless, the reason we wanted to do this podcast is for those of you that, that have products that that went through the EUA pathway to get to market. There's things that, if you want to keep those products in the market post EUA, there's things that you should be doing. And frankly, you should have already been doing them. You should be proactive. You shouldn't be waiting until you get an announcement from FDA that says it's going to end on such and such a date. Yes, those transition guidances are helpful, sort of, kind of, as far as laying out you know steps and processes and details and that sort of thing. But Frankly, a lot of this is really about having a good strategy for your business, a good regulatory strategy, a good transition plan. And there's things you should be doing now. So uh, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And joining me uh, today is, uh, of course, a familiar voice and, and familiar face on the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. So, Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience, and happy holidays. Happy holidays. I suspect this will be uh, a new year post. So, happy new years to uh, all those listening. Uh, hopefully, 2021 was a great year, and hopefully 2022 gets off to a great start for all of you. But, uh, Mike, you said something to me recently, and and um, I think it's timely. And you know, we we like to talk about things that are sort of timely and relevant. And and the topic is um, really about FDA EUA. Yes, you and I have talked a little bit about that before, but FDA has come out with a couple of draft guidance documents. And we'll get into that here in a moment about transitioning, I guess, away from EUA. But before we get into that, a great place to start. Can you remind folks, what is EUA, when to use it? Maybe a quick overview of that. Yeah, great question, John. And as always, thanks for the opportunity to to have this very important discussion with you and your audience. Just a, a, a reminder, a friendly reminder, John, you mentioned that you and I have talked about this before. In fact, we did. We did a podcast on this, and I did a webinar on EUA, the emergency authorization uh, for um, Greenlight back in April of 2020. Yeah. And the reason why I wanted to just point that out, not to toot my own horn, but that was literally at the beginning of COVID. COVID, depending on who you ask, you know, began roughly about uh, about February or, or March yeah. of that year. And we did our first podcast and, and I did my first webinar on the EUA in April. Since then, of course, you know, lots of people have jumped on the bandwagon, but I just wanted to point out that you and I, you know, we, we talk about things oftentimes long before everybody else does. That's true. So just as, as a reminder to the audience, the emergency use authorization or EUA is one of the many pathways to market that medical device companies can use to bring 
devices onto the market here in the U.S., specifically the EUA, and I'll just read a portion of the, the regulation to you, John. It may allow for unapproved medical products or unapproved uses of approved medical products to be used in an emergency situation to diagnose, treat, or prevent a serious or life-threatening disease or condition like COVID, for example, when there's no other adequate, approved, or available alternative that exists. And so basically, it's a very, very special kind of a pathway. It is not an approval. It is not a clearance. It's an authorization. And that's going to have important ramifications as we continue our discussion. Prior to COVID, the drug and the biotech industry have been the primary users of the EUA coming out with vaccines for anthrax and Ebola and Zika virus and a few others. But it really wasn't until COVID that the medical device industry really started using EUAs. And in the last two years or so, since the pandemic has been going on, FDA has authorized more than 800 EUAs uh, for medical devices for COVID-specific indications. As I'm sure you're aware, John, and people hear about them in press, COVID tests, uh, in vitro diagnostic tests, for example, PPEs, personal protective equipments, as well as uh, ventilators and respirators. And let's not forget, of course, the, the COVID vaccines that are now available. These are all on the market today under the Emergency Use Authorization, or EUA. And one final reminder just as we sort of give the audience a recap of the the basics of the EUA, EUA 101, so to speak, the regulatory burden for an EUA, whether it's for a medical device or a vaccine, the regulatory burden is lower than it is for a traditional approval. For example, a 510K or de novo or PMA or on the drug or biologic side of the world, an NDA or uh, a BLA. And just to illustrate, I'll read a small portion from a typical EUA letter. It says, and I'm quoting, the device, whichever the device that we're talking about here, when labeled consistently with the labeling authorized by FDA, is authorized to be distributed under this EUA, despite the fact that it does not meet requirements otherwise required by applicable federal law. Let me read that last part again. There are are granting the EUA despite the fact that it does not meet the requirements otherwise required by applicable federal law. And in the same boilerplate letter that pretty much every company gets when they get an EUA authorization, it goes on to say in justification, based on the totality of the scientific evidence available to the FDA, that it is reasonable to believe that the device may be effective for emergency use in treating patients for whatever it's indicated for during the COVID pandemic when used consistently within the scope of the authorization letter. The reason why I bring that up, John, is it, I know there's some regulatory verbiage here, but it's a, a point of great frustration to me when I hear politicians on the TV or even sometimes come, people coming from FDA on the TV saying that the products that are coming onto the market are just as safe and effective. They meet the normal yeah. uh, FDA requirements when that is factually incorrect. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, this is a problem. You know, on the contrary, you know, the justification is 
something is better than nothing. You know, we have a pandemic. So, you know, putting these products on the market in the short term is, is you know, the the, the benefits probably outweigh the, the risk. But to say that these products meet the normal regulatory requirements, I'm sorry, John, maybe it's me, but that is a factually incorrect statement. And that does have ramifications when we get to the topic of today's discussion, John. And that is, if a device company has a device on the market today under the EUA, and they want to keep it on the market after the pandemic is over, what are they going to have to do to keep it on the market when that EUA expires? Yeah. So I know, John, I went through an awful lot of stuff, including some regulatory gobbledygook. I'm sure it was probably not clear to, to you or, or your audience. How would you like to dig into any of what I just mentioned? But no, it was pretty clear. And I'm, well, we don't have the benefit to getting uh, real-time audience feedback in the moment, but that point you made about the assertion that, that is often made in the media about these EUA products being just as safe and effective and so on and so forth as, quote, normal medical devices is, I think, is important. I mean, it could be, but that's not the barrier to entry, so to speak. That's not the, the burden of proof is not that from an EUA perspective. It's a completely different mechanism and, and process versus a more standard traditional regulatory type of submission, whether that be a 510k or de novo or or PMA. So very different processes for sure. And I think that's important to understand because a lot of, you know, we've seen this at Greenlight. We've been contacted, you know, in the past couple of years by I don't know, easily dozens, probably hundreds. I don't have the actual statistics of companies who were pursuing EUA products, some of which were already medical device companies, many of which were not medical device companies. And and I think that that's created uh, some challenges, I guess. We'll just leave it kind of a little, a little vague, so to speak. But it, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I you sent over a couple of links to to some draft guidances. Uh, you know, FDA has already started to, to uh, socialize, I guess, transition plans uh, for whenever we're out of this pandemic and out of this EUA state. Um, do we know when that EUA process? You know, I think the, the terminology that's used, EUA termination date, it, has that been publicly stated? Is it's going to be on this date? Do we know that yet? Yeah, great question, John. First of all, and again, I just have to remind our audience that this is something that I tried to stress even in the webinar that I did uh, back in April of last year, because this to me is nothing new. Remember, I said a moment ago, the EUA is an authorization. Mm -hmm. It is not a clearance uh, or approval. It's an authorization, and it is a temporary authorization. Let me read one more line from a typical EUA letter, because FDA makes it very clear. It says, this EUA will cease to be effective when the HHS, that's the Health and Human Services declaration that circumstances exist to justify the EUA is terminated. So all of these things will go away eventually. The question is, how soon? Well, yeah. one of the things that I said at the very beginning of COVID was I think a reasonable expectation is to give companies about a six-month notice yeah. uh, when the EUA is going to be terminated. And in fact, that's now what FDA is proposing to give FDA, uh, sorry, to give companies a six month notification. And by the way, John, 
One thing that FDA did not point out, but I think this is a reasonable assumption, is why should all EUAs be terminated at the same time? That, to me, makes absolutely no sense. I think what would make more sense is terminate, for example, uh, COVID diagnostic EUAs at one point, terminate you know, ventilator EUAs at another point, terminate PPE EUAs at a third date, and so on. It's going to be contingent on the medical necessity of that right. particular product not the overall EUA process. Because all those EUAs, I mean, just those few examples that you mentioned, they all have very different indications or intended uses, right? So yeah, that makes, let's apply some logic to that, to the decision. That makes a little bit of sense. Although I just said in regulatory, so, you know. (laughs) Well, I was just going to point out, I always try to, as a biomedical (laughs) engineer, John, apply logic. It's what I call regulatory logic. Whether the rest of the world, including my many friends at FDA, you know, subscribe to that same theory of that same school of regulatory logic, I'm not always sure. But here's the thing. You asked me originally the question, you know, what specific day. Quite frankly, that's purely a political decision. And this is something that yeah. I said back in that webinar as well. It is when the Secretary of Health and Human Services declares this pandemic to be over. That is purely a political decision. And while you and I can certainly speculate as to when that might be, you know, next January 1st or whatever it is, it is 100% speculation. Much more important to me, John, and this is the advice that I've been giving to my customers since the very beginning of COVID. This has not changed one word, and that is, if you have a product that was on the market prior to COVID, In other words, you had a device on the market under a 510K or a de novo or a PMA, and you got an EUA for it by adding a COVID-specific indication, then you pretty much don't have anything to worry about because your product is going to be able to remain on the market. However, if you have a product on the market that is only on the market because of an EUA, and doesn't have a 510K or de novo or PMA or something else, and you plan to continue to have that product on the market after the pandemic, after the EUA has expired, you better darn well start getting your ducks in a row right now. I would not wait for any six month warning or anything else from FDA, because I think it, you know, to, to (laughs) to be a bit kind here, I think it's interesting that FDA is planning on and giving you know many companies a six month warning, the underlining assumption there is that they're going to be able to get a five ten k or a de novo <laughs> within that six month period of time. Yeah. I don't know about you, John, but that's a pretty optimistic estimate. So, well, I mean, I, just to unpack that a little bit, I mean, in a uh, a typical year, my my memory is a little fuzzy. I'm you, I know you know these statistics oftentimes better than I do, but if I recall in a typical year, FDA reviews something like it's less than a thousand five ten Ks if I'm if memory serves. Is that right? Actually no, John, you're it's it's actually a little higher than that. It's okay. typically around three or four thousand. Okay, three or four thousand Ks. All right. Regardless, we're talking about eight you said eight hundred devices have received the EUA during the pandemic. You know, that that would represent a pretty substantial percentage of normal volume of FDA's workload for 510Ks, right? That would be, you know, 800 versus a few thousand. I mean, that's a pretty large percentage. 
Well, it might, John, but we have to be a little bit careful with our numbers here to do an apples to apples comparison, sure. because I can tell you, I, I can't give you specific experience, uh, statistics. I'm not even sure if there are specific uh, statistics uh, under Medufa. I would love to see them if anybody has seen something. But at least in my personal experience, John, the vast majority of EUA devices are not, in fact, new devices. In other words, these devices were already on the market prior to COVID. And like a ventilator, for example, you might have a ventilator on the market for whatever indications. And then the company decides they want to specifically advertise it for COVID. That, in most cases, would require an EUA. But if once that EUA times out, as I said before, that company can continue to of that device on the market, if they want to add as a label expansion to their 510K or whatever it is, a COVID indication, they can certainly do that. So majority of devices, um, I I, I don't think are going to require a brand spanking new 510K or de novo, or if they do, it's just simply going to be a, a label expansion. But a small number of devices, those devices that have UAs that are not on the market for something else, those are the devices that are going to be most affected here. And to be honest with you, John, if the companies that have products like that in that category that I'm just describing, if they sit around and wait for FDA to tell them what day to do this, they're, you know. It's going to be too late. I mean, I, mean, I, yeah. I, I generally, I mean, there's, of course, there's no absolute here, but whenever a company asks, you know, some high level advice on, you know, times the amount of time that one should expect from start to finish to get a 510k cleared from the moment that you submit and like usually it's you should plan on probably about six to nine months i mean there are exceptions to that for sure but yeah if you're if let's just hypothetically say fda says the eua termination date is and i'm making this up folks i don't know this uh, january 1 2022 then that would imply by july 1 2022 that uh, companies need to get you know, their products through the, the FDA submission process and approved and cleared or whatever the appropriate verb there is in that case. And that's just not enough time. Yeah. And I, and I would say, John, you know, for the benefit of all, of our audience, I would take all the dates that John just mentioned with a huge grain of salt. <laughs> I would put mistake. them, I would put them <laughs> in the same category, you know, as the numbers of days that you see in guidance documents. I would take those with a huge grain of salt because FDA will say, for example, we intend to respond within 60 days or 120 days or whatever it is. They don't right. say that they will. So bottom line, I would be proactive in this regard, not reactive. And more importantly, John, just to show you and our audience that maybe the end of COVID, at least in the regulatory or the EU, EUA sense, is closer than some people might think. There is evidence of this even right now. For example, um, I have a couple of devices that very recently have gone to FDA with EUAs that have been denied because those particular categories have been now been deprioritized by the agency. Hmm. In other words, I have one device in particular. Uh, it was a It is a COVID diagnostic device. And basically, FDA has deprioritized it, basically saying, hey, we've already got a bunch of these. This is not a priority for us anymore. Although it's interesting in this particular example, John, as you probably know, 
the vast majority of COVID diagnostics are either immunodiagnostics or molecular diagnostics. In other words, they either on the immunology side, they look for an antigen or an antibody related right. to COVID or on the molecular diagnostic side, like a, a PCR, a polymerase chain reaction test, where you're looking for either a gene or a specific sequence of A's, T's, G's, and that's specific to the COVID virus or the capsid of the COVID virus. Well, the interesting thing about this particular device that was just prioritized, John, was that it works in a totally different mechanism of action. It is not a immunodiagnostic, nor is it a molecular diagnostic. It is a totally different uh, mechanism of action. Obviously, I'm not going to get into the, right. to the details sure. of it, but basically FDA has lumped it in with the other molecular diagnostic, basically saying that it's not a priority anymore. And now the company is Mm, thinking, you know, how should the company push back on the agency? Because they're basically saying, well, you should consider doing this as a de novo. Well, we can do it as a de novo. And we, in the long-term strategy is to bring that product onto the market for the long-term as a de novo. But let's be honest, John, that's going to take, you know, a year or probably more. So what's good is getting a COVID diagnostic onto the market, you know, a year and a half from now when the immediate need is right now. Our, our president just just days ago just yeah. said that there's still an unmet need for COVID diagnostics. And yet, at least in certain situations, John, FDA is deprioritizing certain COVID diagnostics. That doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. I don't watch a ton of news, but you know, I heard the announcement that I think the government was going to purchase something like 500 million COVID tests or something of that nature and distribute those to people. But then they're like, oh, but those won't be available until like February or March. And, you know, everyone else is who is, you know, needs these at home diagnostics. The lines are terrible uh, and there's not enough tests and or there's there's nothing on the shelf and that sort of thing. So it does seem a little interesting, but nonetheless. And the other thing that I would. Yeah, go ahead. I I was just going to say, John, the other thing that's interesting, potentially problematic about the EUA. uh, I said earlier, um, it, it clearly has a lower regulatory burden than a traditional uh, clearance or approval. It also has a lower manufacturing or quality burden as a traditional 510K or de novo. And I'll just read one more sentence from a typical EUA authorization letter. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this, John, as a a quality guy. Uh, But the letter says FDA is waiving applicable CGMP requirements, including quality system requirements uh, with respect to the design, manufacturer, packaging, labeling, storage, and distribution of the authorized medical device under the EUA. My question to you, John, is this a good thing or is this a, is a bad thing? We've already had examples in the past. For example, in the in the um, LA Times, it was reported early in COVID that there were 170 ventilators that were shipped to hospitals that were either broken or de- defective or did not work in some way. So here's my question to you as well as to our audience, John. What is worse? not having enough ventilators or not having enough diagnostic tests or having a bunch of ventilators or diagnostic tests that don't work very well. <laughs> and then the, the the other thing that our audience has to keep in mind is when they transition from an EUA to say a 510K or de novo kind of a product, not only are the regulatory burden going to be higher to get the 510K or the de novo, but the quality burden 
also going to be high. It's going to revert back to what it would be normally without the right. EUA, without the COVID. So do you see this as a potential challenge for, for our industry and the and the companies in them, John? Well, a short answer, yes, I do. Longer answer, I remember when I first read that statement about quality and GMPs and that sort of thing, you know, basically being waived. It was a head scratcher to me because... Um, that implies that that manufacturing uh, a medical device and, and the quality, the inherent quality that one would expect from a medical device is too burdensome. <laughs> I mean, that could be an interpretation. And, and I, I don't view that as burdensome. I mean, I, you know, I look at my role as a medical device professional. I have an impact. What I do has an impact on the quality of life and the devices that I'm involved with um, certainly have an impact on that quality of life. I want it to be a positive impact. So why should, I, I always question that, why Why should the GMP criteria be lifted for something that is essentially performing as a medical device, granted the- Well, why uh, Why yeah. indeed, John? But and I think the justification, it's similar on the regulatory side, it's similar to the to the whole justification of the EUA. And that is, we're not, we're not living in quote unquote normal times. You know, with the COVID, you know, pandemic, you know, emergency, certain mm, shortcuts, and for the lack of a better term, you know, I will use the word shortcuts. Right. Certain shortcuts are justified in, and I have no problem with that in the short term, but but in the long term, not so much. And I would well, like to think, John, and I think that you would probably agree with me on this, that the basic regulatory principles and the basic quality principles would apply. Across the board, whether we're talking about in a in a healthcare emergency or not, would you yeah. agree with that, John? A hundred percent. And you know, it's it's uh, it's a little bit armchair quarterback, and and very much after the fact. I would have rather have seen FDA put some language into the initial COVID regulations. I guess that's the right word. That maybe gave some sort of temporary uh, uh, waived it temporarily, but requested maybe as part of an EUA that the, the company provide a plan as to which, when they would be able to address certain things like, like GMPs and that sort of thing. But it's, like I said, it's armchair quarterback. It's, it's a moot point. And let me give you a perfect example, John, because I think that this is going to be a wake up call I think so for too. certain Dude. players in our industry. Yeah. I have a new customer that's just come to me recently. They had, uh, they're in the category of device where they have a device on the market now under an EUA. They do not have 510K for it yet. They did a pre-sub meeting with the FDA in anticipation of getting their 510K or their de novo. It's still not exactly clear what uh, which sure. pathway that we're going to take yet. But um, And they did all that prior to working with me. But they came to me because they were genuinely surprised. The response that they got from FDA with the pre-sub is, hey, the data that you gave us for the original EUA was sufficient for the EUA. It is not sufficient hmm. for a 510K or a de novo. And basically, that was a, a big, um, how do you want to say, eye-opener for the company, John. <laughs> Right. They thought, to use a regulatory pun here, they thought that they were going to be able to essentially provide the same information, you know, information that was substantially equivalent uh, to the information that they that they provided in the original EUA. And I told them, hey, you don't have to tell me any more details than that. But what I can tell you with 100% certainty is that the regulatory burden, and similarly on the quality side, the quality burden is higher for right. a 
traditional medical device than for in a, a COVID slash EUA medical device. And one other thing that I would mention, John, on the post-market surveillance side, the requirements for an EUA for post-market surveillance are 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 have been relaxed yeah. compared to what they would be for a non-EUA device, uh, which begs the question, a lot of uh, companies are thinking about using some of their post-market surveillance information, if they have any, as real-world evidence to support their 510K or especially their de novo. I love that suggestion, John, as you know. I'm a big fan of using real-world evidence. But remember, the requirements for collecting that information during COVID are not nearly as stringent as they are for non-COVID devices. So whether that's going to be an option for many companies uh, in the immediate future, time will tell. Yeah, so, um, man, we could go on and on about all of that. But (laughs) um, um, in the interest of, you know, I guess kind of – providing insights and, and, and helpful tips and pointers to, to companies that may be in this EUA uh, situation with their products. I mean, the fact that the FDA has published two draft guidances about the transition from, from COVID and EUA, should one imply um, that, that um, you know, this is a sign, you know, we, we the, the fact that FDA is saying, hey, here's a draft guidance that's describing what one needs to do to transition away from EUA. I mean, that's kind of a pretty, it's pretty blatant, right? It's a pretty obvious sign. It is a pretty blatant sign, uh, John, to use your phrase, and I like that phrase. Um, in my opinion, it's nothing new. As I said before, you know, I said exactly the same thing two right. years ago at the whole beginning here. But this is the uh, at least first official sign that FDA is, you know, moving in this direction. Um, And I think in that sense, it's a good, you know, it's trying to be a little bit proactive in getting industry and getting companies in this industry to be aware that, hey, EUAs are temporary. There is going to be an end. We don't know exactly when that is going to be yet, but you know, we're, we want to remind you that there is going to be an end. I personally, John, I don't need FDA to remind me of that. I mean, I mean to me, that's a statement of the obvious, and I've been saying this to customers two yeah. years ago. But for those people that don't have you know, <laughs> the benefit of having a good regulatory consultant on their team. I don't mean just a regulatory consultant, but a good one, because a good regulatory consultant does not need guidance like this from the agency. This is just, to me, common sense. But at the end of the day, um, companies should be prepared. And if a company wants to be passive and waiting, you know, wait for FDA to give them a specific date, okay, fine. I mean, that's their decision. But in my view, John, I would much be, I would much prefer to be proactive. Sure. I would much get that um that uh that process going already if it's not already going uh so that you're not uh you know you're not caught you know in in, in between i mean to me that just makes common sense i mean so so if you're a company uh listening who has the eua product and and it doesn't have any other 510k de novo or, or pma uh, without a COVID indication basically what what you should hear from our conversation is that you need to get going. You need to start that process. Um, I think FDA even suggested whether or not this is a makes sense or not. We can talk about that too. But even suggested possibly even uh, engaging FDA in a pre-submission. But nonetheless, you need to start the ball rolling because if you're going to wait until that date is announced, 
there's a pretty good chance that you're not going to get through all the steps and the, and the details and all the processes that you're going to need to go through in order to keep your product to market. So that basically you're, you're, you're probably going to exit the market um, maybe before you wanted to. So you need to get ahead of this right now. I would agree a hundred percent with that advice, John. I think that's very prudent advice, but I would actually take it one step further. I would also not make the assumption as one of my new customers did prior to starting to work with me that the burden, the regulatory burden for the EUA is the same as what it would be for a 510k or de novo. And therefore all we have to do is essentially resubmit the same information for the EU for the 510k or the de novo as we did originally for the EUA. I would not make that assumption on the at all. On the contrary, if you have a device on the market that's only on the market as an EUA and not uh, under some other regulatory identity, I would for all intents and purposes, John, recommend forgetting what you did for the EUA and starting out with a blank slate, a blank piece of paper and ask yourself the question, okay, if you were bringing this product on to the market for the very first time as a 510k or especially as a de novo forget about what you did for the eua what would you need in terms of benchtop testing uh maybe animal testing maybe even clinical testing to support that submission and then once you do that regulatory burden assessment then you can go back and say okay what data can we cannibalize can we repurpose from our original eua and what data can we also can cannibalize or repurpose from the period of the time where the device is on the market under the EUA, i.e. post-market surveillance or real-world evidence, and then do a gap analysis to see, okay, of all of the data that I have through today, what's the difference between that amount of data and what I will need for this new submission? And that's the kind of uh, analysis, that's the kind of strategic uh, thinking that a really good company will go through even before for taking this to the FDA is a pre-sub. Because otherwise, you're going to run into the same situation that this other company ran into. Hey, what you did before is not enough for, you know, what you're wanting to do next. And that's the proverbial, you know, the deer looking, you know, into the headlight. Well, wouldn't be surprised. To, to, I guess, um, I I know we try to stay away from finite timelines, but to give folks listening a bit of perspective, um, you know, with a, a timeline element to it. Let's imagine that you submitted a pre-submission today. You make this assumption that I can essentially submit the same information for my 510K as what I did to get EUA for my product. But I'm going to verify, so to speak, that assumption by getting a pre-submission with FDA. Well, for all intents and purposes, that's at least a 60-day process. Um, and some branches aren't even accepting pre-subs that now I don't know if that's changed, but anyway, so that's at least two months. Uh, and, and now FDA comes back and says, Oh, we don't agree. You should do, you know, X, Y, and Z or, or whatever the case, whatever the outcome is. So now you're, you're at least two months behind. Um, so, you know, do the math folks. Uh, if you're not on it, if you're not building a plan, a strategy, uh, and, and ex- starting to execute that strategy, you're going to be leaving the market with your products. I couldn't agree more. All right. Anything else uh, you think is pertinent or important for, for folks to take home on, on this um, impending EUA termination that, that may be coming to us soon? 
Well, good question. Just to kind of recap, so keep in mind that uh, an EUA is one uh, pathway to market for certain medical devices, but it's only one. And remember, you need to have an overall regulatory strategy. I had a, a customer come to me, which actually I, I, I decided not to work with because they wanted me to help them with their EUA strategy. And I said, okay, fine, I'm happy to do that. But what about your overall regulatory strategy? And I said, they said, no, 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 we don't need help with that, just with the EUA. I said, well, thank you very much, but I don't want to work in that kind of a situation because that's like, you know, asking a surgeon to do surgery with one arm time behind, time behind their back. You know, you need to understand, I don't mean you literally, John, but our audience needs to understand that the EUA it needs to be part of your overall regulatory yeah. strategy. How does it fit into the big picture? Whether you're going to have a 510K or a PMA or something before or after and, and, and so on and so on. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in mind is, as we've talked about, these are all going to time out sooner or later. We know we can speculate as to the dates, but it doesn't matter. They're definitely going to go away and you need to have a transition plan of your own. FDA is starting to put together a transition plan, but don't wait for them to do it. Right. You need to be proactive and do it yourself. Don't assume that the amount of data or evidence that you gave them for the original EUA is going to be sufficient for the, your, your next submission, because I can just about guarantee it probably won't be. And finally, don't waste FDA's time. You know, Go to FDA with a well thought out, well um, uh, anticipated plan. As a as a consultant for the agency, John, uh, and we've talked about this before. Some of the stuff that I see come into the agency, especially in the area of EUAs and pre EUAs, it is one hundred percent crap. Yeah. I hate to be, you know, so so flagrant about it, but I that's the most polite word that I can, you know, can I can describe it. It is literally just a bunch of you know what. So make sure that you know what you're doing, that you have a well thought out plan. And if you don't, or if you don't, you know, have expertise in all of the different areas, then seek out people, you know, who do, because none of us, myself included, can be experts in everything. But we have an obligation to go to the FDA and be professional and be able to not just explain to them what we're going to do, but why we're going to do it. Absolutely. That's advice, John, that you've heard me give many times, not just to an EUA, but to, you know, regulatory across the board and just playing in the medical device business. Yeah. I don't know, maybe, John, I'm naive. Maybe I fall, fell off the turnip truck yesterday, but that's my approach to this game. And, you know, in the 30 years that I've been playing this game, I've been reasonably successful doing it. So yeah. um, those are some of my Final thoughts, John, is there anything else that you would add to the list before we wrap this up? Well, I, I think we, I don't know if we, if we beat the topic to death, but, um, <laughs> um, but you know, it's, it, the time to take action is, is, is definitely upon us. It probably was, has been upon us for quite some time for those who have EUA products. So, you know, uh, if you don't know what to do or how to do it or uh, how to define a strategy that makes sense or, or and all those sorts of things, I mean, do ask for help. It is okay to ask for help. It is, in my opinion, less acceptable to not ask for help and just plead ignorance because that's just, you're, you're making devices that, impact quality of life. I keep coming back to that. So ask for help. And, you know, Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences, uh, one of, if not the best regulatory resource you can have in your corner. 
Um, he, he thinks about this, your challenge as, as a medical device company and your regulatory strategy, frankly, a lot differently than in a good way than uh, anyone else I've ever interacted with in this industry. And I've, I've been doing this myself for 20 plus years. So, you know, great person to have in your corner. So reach out to him. Um, I want to thank Mike. Uh, I, it's been a bit since you and I, uh, at least our calendar time, have chatted. Um, so it's good to catch up. And I think this is a, a great timely topic. And I'm sure, you know, the next time we chat, we'll find another one. But thank you, Mike, uh, for your insights on this. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure and happy holidays to you and to our audience and uh, all the best in the, the new year. And uh, I look forward to continuing having these discussions together. Absolutely. And folks, if you are just a regular medical device company, or maybe you're a company that does have an EUA device uh, on the market and you need some help figuring out what GMPs are, what quality systems are, how to document and manage design controls and risk management and all the things that you're going to need to have in place as a real legitimate compliant medical device company. Well, Greenlight Guru, we have uh, products and, and solutions that can help you. We have the only medical device success platform on the market today that's designed for the medical device industry by actual medical device professionals. So we're working with uh, hundreds and hundreds of companies across the globe, quite a few of which actually have EUA products, and we're helping them uh, make sure that that they can continue to stay in market after this EUA period ends. So if, if that's something you want some help with, then you know, reach out to us, www.greenlight.guru. We'd be happy to have a conversation with you and, and help explain our products and services and understand your needs and requirements and see if we have something that might work for you. So check it out. As always, thank you for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, the number one podcast in the medical device industry. And that's because of listeners like you. So thank you for continuing to do so and continuing to spread the word to your friends and colleagues. As always, this is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.